0: Hello, you're listening to Andrew Mitchell, and this is Don't Mess With Nature, a series of podcasts in which we look at how the world can get into a better state of equilibrium between natural capital and financial capital. Well, today, I thought we'd talk about billion-dollar bonds, and more specifically, billion-dollar landscape bonds, a form of green bond. How can you actually create a billion-dollar bond that might help save nature? This all started a number of years ago when I was setting up something called the Forest Footprint Disclosure Project. This was the idea that companies should start to reveal to the world the extent to which they had a footprint uh, on nature, and in particular in forests. Big companies might be destroying forests as part of their business model or using uh, Supply chains that were connected to forests and all of that kind of thing. And in order to get the companies to respond to that request saying, you know, will you disclose what your forest footprint is? I mean, most of them would have said, you can take a running jump and I'm putting your questionnaire in the waste paper bin. Why would they bother to ask? Except for one thing. The people who were asking the question was not me, but the people who owned the companies, meaning shareholders, the pension funds, the big asset managers that actually had shares in those companies. They said, we want to know this because we think this is going to be a problem in the future that we want to know about. So the companies started to answer. And uh, it could be a story for another podcast as to what happened with that. But on my steering committee, which I used to chair, which was full of financial types, and I was a zoologist really learning their language, didn't know what they were talking about half the time, and they didn't know what I was talking about most of the time. And then at the end of one of these meetings, one of these pension fund guys came up to me and he said, Andrew, you know, the trouble is all you guys in the conservation world, you just think too small. You've got no idea at the scale that we have to operate at as big pension funds. And he said, said, look, what could you do if I gave you a billion dollars? What could you do with a billion dollars that could save nature? What kind of a product could you offer me that I could put in my pension fund that would be worth a billion dollars. Well, Nobody's ever said that to me. And that's a pretty interesting question isn't it? What could you do with a billion dollars? You don't hear that every day. Pop down the shop or go into the bank and say, yeah, what can you do with a billion dollars? But these are the sorts of everyday questions that asset managers who run our pension funds are asking themselves, where do I put my next billion? And that's because if you add up all the money That we're all putting into our pensions worldwide, it's absolutely gigantic. It's not billions, it's trillions. And they have a really hard time deciding, well, where can I put this money? And there's no point in putting 10 quid here or 100 pounds there or a million there. It's all too complicated. They've got to deal with big chunks of money, like a billion dollars, and they've got to put it somewhere where they're pretty sure they're going to get a good return on it. But in the world of conservation, there are three countries which people live in. The first country is called Melonia. I call it Melonia. And Melonia is where the NGOs, that's the non-governmental organizations, things like bingos, like uh, the World Wildlife Fund, that's big NGOs, bingos. And my organization was a, a mingo. I used to say we're a mingo, a mini NGO. And um, they tend to work, you know, they get a million dollars, a lot of money. A lot of money to spend on a wildlife project. That's a lot. Then you go to governments. The governments live in the world of billonia. They think a billion dollars is a lot of money. But if you get into the world of finance, big banks, big pension funds, they live in the world of Trilonia. That's a serious amount of money to be dealing with. And many of our large pension funds manage money at that sort of scale. It's a huge amount of money. So, in order to deploy their cash, they're looking for items where they can put anything from half a billion up to a billion, possibly one and a half billion in one chunk. So it might be, I'm going to build 50 hospitals across America. That's a, that's a good number. I can do that. Uh, what about building a new railroad or something like that, or a massive shipping company? These sorts of things soak up billions. But nature, we're all in the millennia world, so it's really hard to connect our world of trying to protect nature with the world of big money and big finance. So that's one of the things that's really interested me in, in, in recent years. And to answer the question of what you can do with a billion dollars, I thought we'd go on an expedition. That's what these podcasts are like. So the first part of our expedition is taking us to Mount Elgon. Mount Elgon is in Kenya, and it's an amazing mountain, an extinct volcano, about 24 million years old, that rises up to 3,000 meters up into the sky. And I first got involved with Mount Elgon back in the early 1980s when a friend of mine called Ian Redmond came along and said, do you know what? In Mount Elgon, there's something really extraordinary going on. There are these elephants that go into the mountain at night and go deep into caves in total darkness, and mine salt with their tusks. I said, Ian, what have you been smoking today? Uh, It must be off your trolley. He said, no, it's true. Nobody knew much about them. And as part of an expedition I was involved in then called Operation Drake, led by the Scientific Exploration Society, we did a round-the-world expedition. And we ended up in East Africa in the last phases. And so we mounted uh, a sub-expedition to Mount Elgon, led by Ian. And he went in there, and they took cameras that could see in the dark. This was a revolution in those days. It's commonplace now. But in those days, having cameras that could see infrared, and there were the heat coming off the elephant's bodies, was revolutionary. So we mounted up these cameras in the dark. Actually, the truth is that the development came from looking for criminals in the dark. In this case, in Ireland, in Northern Ireland, looking for people who were planting bombs at night. And they were called individual weapon sites. And we converted these into things that you could attach to cameras so we could see elephants in the dark. Well, we've got these cameras all set up. And sure enough, this amazing spectacle happened with giant elephants moving into the cave and digging about. Sadly, it's not easy to see in the dark if you're an elephant like anyone else. And some of these caverns and the elephants had baby elephants that have fallen into the crevasses and died there. And so as a result we were able to document for the first time how these elephants were using the cave the cave became notorious later because of uh, uh, some people who went into the cave and then died of a virus and this virus was the precursor of ebola it was called marburg virus luckily it's not nearly as bad as ebola and of course we're all living through a, a terrible time with viruses now We've probably heard quite a lot about coronaviruses. Maybe we've forgotten about the filoviruses or filoviruses. These are the ones which cause Ebola. The one that was discovered in this cave called Keetum Cave became a story in one of a, in a wonderful book called The Hot Stuff, uh, which documented how the Americans sent in a whole lot of medics in there, in their, what we today call PPE, and uh, looking like spacemen, to try and find this virus, because Ebola was thought to be really dangerous, and they thought this was beginning here. They didn't actually find the virus. Once again, bats were involved. There are loads of bats in the cave. And then, of course, we we, we know the story of Ebola that's occurred so tragically in in many other parts of uh, Africa. Unlike the coronavirus, which is quite efficient because it doesn't kill very many people, the uh, furloviruses and the Ebola virus in particular is is a dreadful virus because nearly uh, 90% of the people who get it die. So it's a very inefficient virus. Nature doesn't want to work that way because you don't want to kill your host. Well, so why am I talking about Mount Elgon and all these stories? What I learned about Mount Elgon was that there are all these people living on the sides of this great volcano. And why do they live there? Because there's a lot of rain. It's high up. You get a lot of rain, good vegetation. It's a great place to put a farm. Uh, But of course, when you get too many people, they cut down the trees. And guess what happens? You don't get as much rain. Coupled with that, you've got climate change. So things are getting drier and drier. And the farmers were trying to make it extremely difficult for them to make a good living. And so they end up cutting down more wood for trees and getting drier pasture land. Their cows are producing tiny amounts of milk. It was all going down into a dead end. So a few years ago, a bunch of companies all came together with the farmers, uh, organized by a local NGO, a a, non-governmental charitable organization, said, look, why don't we organize these farmers into cooperatives? Why don't we find a way to finance what they need? which is to replant the hillsides, to create a new kind of agriculture, to invest in better genetics for the cows so they produce more milk, to have cooling uh, vessels that can keep the milk fresh. But that costs money up front. And the farmers would say, I haven't got the money. I've got to send my kids to school. If I stop doing this, it's going to cost me a fortune. They needed to have money up front to do it. Well, who wants to lend to farmers on Mount Elgon? In in northern Kenya, nobody its tough to do. So these businesses all got together. And the key thing here was Brookside Dairies, which is one of the biggest dairies in East Africa. And they said, look, if you can do this, we'll promise to buy all the milk you can give us for 10 years. Now, that's very nice to the farmers, but it's much more interesting to the financiers because they've got what's called an offtake agreement a deal with someone who's going to buy the product so they invest up front the farmers do what they say they're going to do and produce lots of milk someone's going to buy the product that means they get paid back if they make a loan and that's the basis of creating a bond a landscape bond which can basically loan money up front and help nature to survive and give farmers a good livelihood so this this was a really good model, and in fact, thirty thousand farmers took place in, in in this program, and it's been a huge success. It's, it's going to run until twenty twenty six. We've got another six years to run, so I haven't got to the end of it yet. But hundreds and hundreds of, of farmers are engaged. They are, in fact, as I said, thirty thousand planting new trees, investing in new cattle which are more productive, investing in the equipment that's required. All by creating this novel finance mechanism. So it looks like it's a pretty good result with lots of milk going to the families that need it. And the forests around Mount Elgon, which those elephants need to live on, because they need, of course, to have good food to eat, means that the cave mining elephants of Mount Elgon may survive as well. Good result. But it's not a billion dollars, is it? Well, to answer, how we can create a billion dollar bond, I've got to take you to another cave on the other side of the world. This cave is called Deer Cave and it's much bigger than the one in Mount Elgon. And I can remember in 1978 walking into this cave with a friend of mine called Nigel Windsor. It had taken us several days to go upriver into the rainforest of Borneo in northern Sarawak, where we were on a, a big expedition there with the Malaysian government and the Royal Geographical Society. This cave, you can only really see it amongst the trees, like a sort of dark gash in the side of a huge mountain. That gash gives you no real idea of how big the cave is when you go inside. It took us 15 minutes to walk into the cave, walking up a river that came out of the cave. And even then, we were only just walking in. This cave is so big that you can put Sir Paul's Cathedral in it. That's the huge cathedral in London. The entire cathedral would fit inside the cave with space to spare. Walking into this cave, the river trickles all the way through. You've got it boulders the size of giant houses all around you. And I'm wading knee-deep in batship. Yeah. Because up in the roof of this cave, there are millions and millions of bats. The only thing that's not very nice when you're wading through this bat guano, which is a sort of browny sort of sludge, is that if you walk out of the river and you're wading through this sludge into the cave, because these bats have been there for millions of years, is you don't want to stop. Because on the surface of all that sludge is an extraordinary, nightmarish ecology of insects and creepy crawlies that are feeding on the muck that comes down from the roof above. And largest of these are giant earwigs. And they normally live up at the roof of the cave feasting on skin flakes from naked fruit bats. There are a kind of a fruit bat that actually has no fur. And it, these poor bats are tormented by giant earwigs. They're almost three centimetres long. that's almost as long as your thumb. And the problem is that they fall off the bats and land down on the floor of the cave where all these mushes that we're wading through. And Nigel and I were walking through with this stuff, and we'd stop and say, goodness me, look at all the bats up there. My God, look at the size of the boulders. Isn't it dark in here? If we look back, we can just see the light coming in. Whilst you're doing that, the nightmare around your feet is trying to go up, and they want to go back to the bats in the roof. And the best way to get there is anything that's going up, and that includes human legs. You look down at your ankles, which are buried in the muck, and you've got a swarm of these giant earwigs coming up your legs, coming past your thighs, getting up to your armpits and up into your hair. Oh my God! And you start pulling them off, you start to run, you start to move, you're flicking these things off. That's the joy of a zoologist's life, if you're exploring how not to mess with nature. It's not an easy task at the front line so we wade on through this cave not stopping very often i can assure you and we get to the back end of the cave and there's a thing like a tube tunnel at the end of the cave is black and there's a strong wind coming out of this tube tunnel just like the metro in a city little did we know when we were looking into that tunnel in 1978 That when later explorers came, led by Andy Evis, one of the greatest cave explorers in the world, that we would discover the largest cave system in the entire world was hidden inside that mountain. It went on for miles. Speleologists went in there, those are people who study caves, and discovered that one of the largest caves there was big enough to put seven jumbo jets in end to end. They found the biggest cave system. It goes on for miles and miles and miles. They're still discovering new caves to this day. What an amazing thing to discover inside a new national park of unbelievable rainforests and trees. But the big threat around this park was palm oil, was the encroachment of the palm oil industry to create an oil, a vegetable oil, that's hugely successful around the world. And this cave represented this kind of last bastion. And I was thinking of the millions of tiny little bats flying up in the, in, the, in the cave roof. They used to spiral out of the uh, cave in the evenings like a black corkscrew and hawks would dive in like fighter jets to try and grab them. And those little tiny bats all added up to something very special. And it's a bit like our pound notes that we put in our pension funds. They all add up to something quite special that actually invests in companies and drives the world economy. But how can we connect this world of nature with our pound notes? but at the scale of a billion dollars. Well, the clue comes from palm oil. The palm oil industry is dominated by Indonesia and Malaysia. 90% of the world's palm oil is created by just those two countries. You plant a palm oil tree, it takes about five years to grow, and lives for about 25 years, and then it begins to become less productive. The problem with the palm oil trees in Indonesia and Malaysia is a lot of them are getting very old, getting the end of their life. And 50% of the palm oil that's created in the world is created by big companies with managed plantations, companies like Unilever and Golden Agri and all these other companies that people know, uh, with well-managed, not always well-managed, but big plantations. But the other 50% is just small families with a couple of hectares who are trying to feed their children and educate them with a few palm oil trees. And you say to them, why don't you get rid of your old palm oil trees and plant new ones? And they say, well, that sounds a good idea, but how am I going to pay for that? And how long does it take for that tree to start producing any money? Well, the answer is, it's called the valley of death. That's what they call the valley of death. The five years or six years it takes when you rip out the old trees, plant new ones, and wait for them to grow and start giving you an income. What are they going to do for that five years? How are they going to you know, look after their families and send them to school with no money coming in? And that's a massive financing challenge that valley of death. But if we can get the money right, we can turn it into a valley of life. If we can use that money to create better palm oil plantations, which are not just monocultures, but uh, include a much more biodiversity in different crops, and that can finance these families over five years, whilst they get ready for the palm oil to come on stream, that would be a good solution. Well, how big is the opportunity? Well, a financier friend of mine did a sort of fag pack calculation and reckoned that If you ripped out all the old trees and put in the new ones across Indonesia alone, that would be a $40 billion opportunity. Absolutely massive. Uh, you can't finance that sort of thing with little bits of money. You've got to go to the big finances to do it. That's where the billion-dollar bond idea comes in. So I thought, that could be interesting. How could we try to bring big money into this situation? So I was sitting in a bar in a hotel in, in jakarta which is the capital of indonesia uh ooh, quite a few years uh, must be about seven years ago now and uh, we just had a big conference organized by something called un orchid which was um, the office that was coordinating the financing going into the protection of forests and something called red plus which is a carbon uh, related thing, which we'll talk about another time, carbon credits and things like that. We had a very successful conference. Ministers have showed up. There have been hundreds of people, big financiers, all sorts of people, saying, how do we do this for Indonesia? How do we uh, reform the palm oil industry and help Indonesia to do it in a way which doesn't destroy forests, uh, but does it in a more sustainable way? And that requires upfront money, which might take 10 years to get your money back. And the big problem in these countries is that not everybody wants to put their money in a place like Indonesia. Guess why? Well, there's a lot of dodgy stuff goes on in Indonesia. uh, So you're not sure whether you're going to get your money back. The currency is weak. So you've got something called Forex or currency risk. You're you're going to pay out the money in dollars, but the money is being used in Rupiah, which is the local money in Indonesia. Well, you know, if the Rupiah devalues, it goes up and down, up and down. It's not as stable as the dollar. So that's another problem they got to worry about So all these problems for financiers that put them off investing in a country like indonesia so we were sitting there after this conference having gone through all this and having a beer with my old friend satir and uh, who was running that office and uh, an indian guy and, he, and i said to him you know the guy you need to talk to is sitting over there on his own looking like an old loner he's called chris botsford and he's sitting there and he works for a company called adm capital and they do a lot of finance in Indonesia and they really care about nature and they're really smart about what they do so we got together over a bottle of beer sitting in that hotel and we cooked out the idea and the vision of creating the world's first billion dollar landscape bond that's how these things start it's just a conversation over a beer and, and getting the right people together in the room to get a long story short uh, we had to get the president of Indonesia to uh, buy into this idea, and of course, because it was a big idea, he was very supportive. That's Jokowi, and so he said, Well, I think this would be great if you can do it. So, you know, it's got my tick in the box. So, uh, it's very important in a country like Indonesia where the government runs everything to get the support of the president, and we did, and then. ADM said, well, we'll we'll put the financing together. We'll figure out how that's done. And then you've got to deal with all the smallholders and the people on the ground. Uh, and so the vision was, could we create a billion-dollar bond the first time that a product like that could be created, which then we come back to that pension fund I started in the beginning. Then that's a ticket size that they're interested in. Yeah, I can put that in my portfolio if you come out of a billion-dollar landscape bond. Because one of the in finance is called warehousing. Basically, what it means is you aggregate a lot of small financial opportunities, and you package them together, and you make a much bigger one. So you you wrap that all together, and you've got 10 different financing opportunities all going on. You put that together, and then you've got, that adds up to a billion, and that's what you offer to the market. Could that work? Well, we spent a lot of time and years talking with lots of different things, but going around lots of different financing opportunities. And the first one actually to come off the blocks uh, was an interesting thing because you remember what I was talking about at Mount Elgon, 30,000 farmers. This was a massive project for rubber and a big rubber plantation in Sumatra uh, where the local people were causing destruction of a national park Around the perimeter, you've got old, tired, rubber plantations. If you could beef up the plantations, bring them into the 21st century, give a better livelihood to the local people, then they wouldn't need to hack down forests in the park. You put all that together, that was a $90 million financing opportunity. And so a couple of years ago, that actually got off the blocks. And that was the first step on our way to the billion-dollar bond. It's about... $96 million, it was signed off, agreed. And the key thing, you remember I talked about the dairy that said they'd take all the milk? Well, the equivalent in this project was Michelin, who said, We'll take all the rubber. So they said, We'll buy all the rubber if you get the plantation to work better. And so the offtake agreement was agreed by Michelin. The financing uh, was put together with ADM, and uh, the, the support came, political support came from the government of Indonesia. The last part was the the warehousing, the packaging up of all this product, and and what we what might come later. It's just the first steps. Was provided by BNP Paribas, a massive, big French bank that works all over the world. They had the vision to try and do this. We're not quite there yet, but uh, what's interesting is that BNP have now created a vision of creating a portfolio of a fifteen billion dollar portfolio of these kinds of landscape green bonds it's just the beginning of what might become a whole new asset class that could get into your pension fund and mine and wouldn't that be nice if i thought well i can invest in projects like this in my pension fund uh, I, I don't want to be doing stuff that's de- destroying forest. this could be actually helping local people helping restore nature and what a nice thing to do with my pension fund we're not there yet but green bonds are growing fast And sooner or later, we're going to have more and more in the world of landscapes. And perhaps in another podcast, we'll talk about the world of green bonds and where that's going. You've been listening to Don't Mess With Nature. And I'm Andrew Mitchell. And we're trying to explore a new state of equilibrium between nature and money. Join me next time.